Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and as always, we get to talk to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And we get to go for the first time all the way to Hawaii to have a conversation with my new friend, Lee Lewis. Uh, welcome, Lee. Great to have you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over these last few weeks as well. Indeed. And I'm, I'm enjoying watching on uh, Facebook your uh, Lee's Breakfast Club that uh, is uh, broadcast live every Saturday morning. Yeah, from the beautiful uplands of Wahiwa Heights. <laughs> the capital, the cultural capital of Wahiwa Oha uh, on the island of Oahu. And actually, Wahiwa is an island on an island in the mountains in the midmost heart of the Pacific because we're surrounded by a river that splits above us and joins again below us. We're in the mountain, we're at about 1,100 feet, and we're only about 10, 15 minutes from the ocean. So we, there's quite a climb to get to Wahiwa from the, from the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And and that just happens to be an island on this island <laughs> of Oahu. Oahu is the city and county of Honolulu. All the names of other what appear as towns are just districts of Honolulu. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say Honolulu, but it's H-O-N-O. It's Honolulu. I know aloha and mahalo <laughs> in the in a few other words, but I have a feature on my breakfast club. We have a Hawaiian word of the day. And so little by little, we get to learn words one at a time. This is a difficulty for me. I'm not, I, I know some Spanish because I took it in college and I lived and worked in Central America and in Spain. And I built houses in Texas and Arizona and you just need to know Spanish uh -huh. mm -hmm. to, to do that. I also studied Norwegian of all things. And I taught school in Norway when I was first out of college. But Hawaiian is a special language and each word might have several meanings. Like most words have several meanings mm -hmm. and they're all connected, you know, And but it is very interesting language. It's a beautiful culture. It's a beautiful language. The people are beautiful. I love it. And you've been there how many years? I've been here almost five years now since January, 2016. So it'll be five years in a couple months or a month or so. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot of distance between uh, your uh, Methodist upbringing back in some northern state, wasn't it? Yeah. I grew up in Holly, Minnesota, which is 18 miles outside of Fargo, North Dakota, where I was actually born because that was the nearest hospital, the one that my parents used anyway. Mm -hmm. So I grew up on a farm, actually that my great-grandfather built in 1874. I was the fourth generation to live in the same house that was homesteaded way back then. Mm. And we have the bill of lading for all the materials used to build the house I grew up in, wow. $154. <laughs> was it a wooden structure with, was there any sod involved? Uh, it, was, it was stick frame. Stick frame. Huh? It was stick frame and the, the shingles were split cedar, were, it was a cedar shake roof and it was still there a hundred years later when we were there. Beautiful. Yeah. 
So it, it was actually the third house built in Clay County, Minnesota, which is heavily populated now, but mm -hmm. back in 1874, it was the third house. And here's the thing that I like, I, I've been a home builder most of my life. And back in 1874, they didn't have, you didn't have to pull a permit to build the house. Mm. You didn't have to get inspected by city or county engineers to make sure you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. But the houses and the techniques that they used back then stood the test of time yeah. for centuries. Wonderful. Yes. In fact, houses that were in the city of Stavanger, Arizona, where I taught school when I was first out of college, I stayed in houses there that were 850 years old. They were stick frame houses right on the salty breezes coming off the uh, North Sea Ocean. So we can build and we can do things as individuals that we don't need government oversight, etc. I hear a, a philosophy developing here that uh, we may get to pick through some more as we go. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Where did you go to college? Well, I actually went to five different universities. I found out it was harder to hit a moving target. You know, that's how, what I say. <laughs> I started out at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I had scholastic and athletic scholarships. I played football, baseball, and basketball. And also, I was valedictorian in my class. So I had scholarships in both athletic and scholastic. There I found out early on that being a professional football player wasn't my calling. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wasn't into that pain element for one, one reason. <laughs> and in baseball, I actually was invited to try out for the Minnesota Twins, which I did. And so at Metropolitan Stadium, sometime in 1969, just when I was out of high school, that's the time that I learned what a professional baseball player was. And I wasn't one. <laughs> so, you know, all these people, all these kids that are in Pee Wee Baseball and Babe Ruth, American Legion, mm -hmm. maybe one in six million are going to be a professional. Yeah. So you're not just one in a thousand or one in a million. You're one in six million. Hmm. And I was good, uh -huh. but I wasn't one in six million. Yeah. yeah. But still, I enjoyed the game. I loved the game. And so I played it. That's what we did. Uh-huh. So we could uh, tell the listening audience that uh, in the background, they're either hearing my cat or the birds that are around you. Just over the wall here in my Palatus studio. <laughs> and your birds may be stimulating my cats. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, are they, where are these birds? <laughs> so I started out at University of North Dakota. So undergraduate there, I studied engineering and dance. Mm -hmm. And... It was dance because it's strange how when you're a child, how things influence you. When I was in the fourth grade, I tried out for the part in our fourth grade class play, you know, which is a big thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get the part for singing. And I wanted it because we were going to sing that song, Daisy, Daisy, give mm -hmm. me your answer, do. Mm -hmm. And the female part was won by a girl I had a crush on, <laughs> Gloria. And so I tried out for it, but Tim beat me out. And so I was devastated. So I stopped singing. However, that same year in the fourth grade, we had six weeks of square dancing in physical education. Mm -hmm. And I made the final square to perform in front of the Parent Teacher Association. And I love the adulation, you know, the applause sure, and all like sure. that. So I became a dancer. 
We had local people that would hold square dance lessons in the basement for kids. And so for the until I graduated from high school, I was in a square dance group and I loved dancing. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to college, I studied dancing. So I had every type of dance you can imagine, whether it's Queen Elizabethan court dances, African spiritual dances, um, Central American dances, ballroom dancing, tap dance, ballet, you name it. We did choreography classes. And the beauty of it was there were 62 people in the department and only two guys. And I was the only, <laughs> and I was the only one that wasn't gay. And so I got a choice of 60 women to choose from for my dance partner. So I had just the most wonderful experience there wow. and, and ended up dancing in front of tens of thousands of people because we were always called upon by the university to entertain like the national education, North Dakota chapter when they came for their annual convention. Sure, yeah. Such, and such things like that. Yeah. So it, it was a wonderful experience. So undergraduate engineering dance, I moved to, uh, after that I went to, University in Minnesota, of Minnesota in Moorhead, which is a twin city of Fargo, North Dakota. So mm-hmm. I could take classes in both places. They had an arrangement. So I took architecture, I took education and mathematics. So I got degrees in mathematics and education undergraduate. And I did some more studies in architecture for my master's after teaching school a couple of years in Norway. So University of North Dakota, North Dakota State University, University of Minnesota, Moorhead, University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and then finally, Nickel State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Yeah, where did that come from? So when I was teaching school in Norway, the school was set up by major oil companies because they had discovered oil in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. And so enticed people to come over and work there, they set up a school system. So I taught school there. So all my kid, all my students were sons and daughters of oil well executives. Uh, oil company executives and such. So they convinced me I should go to do uh, some offshore oil exploration, which I did for five years. Oh, And it, it was an incredible experience in a um, Ernest Hemingway definition of romantic. It was a romantic job. Huh. Traveled the world. I hit probably every major ocean in the world got to every continent in the world except uh, Antarctica, and just had a wonderful experience doing that. So that's why I went to Nickel State University in Thibodeau because they offered a certification of an offshore oil well blowout prevention specialist. Whoa, we need you. So I'm certified. No kidding, they needed me in the Gulf of Mexico before a few years ago. You were building on your engineering, on your math, on your architecture, all of that seemed to play together into that. Right. And during all of this, I built my, I became a general contractor when I was 16. I built my first contract building when I was 16. It was a one and a half story, two car garage. And then when I was a sophomore, I helped my uncle before I went to college, build his house. Hmm. And so that was from the under excavation of the basement slab to the rafters and roof and everything mm-hmm. so i learned hands-on how hands-on. to build a house right hands-on yeah and you had the you had the great 1874 models to uh it exactly did it was old school building but the principles are applied even to modern day techniques mm-hmm. 
So uh, we're, we're down in Louisiana and uh, you've got your certificate. Did you stay in oil or did you move on? Well, I did move on because from the time of 16, I was always involved in the construction of homes. Oh, okay. In the summertime as student, uh, even when I was um, doing offshore oil, mm -hmm. that was every other month. You worked 28 days, had 28 days off. So I always had something going on the days off as well. Wow. However, I did eventually move on. And the reason was it was back in 1980, 81. And it was getting very dangerous because all 500 ships or offshore semi-submersibles or whatever the platform was that we drilled offshore, there was only 500 in the world and they were 100% occupied. And for to get personnel on there, essentially the uh, application for employment went something like this. They held a mirror under your nose and if two droplets formed, you're hired. In other words, if you were breathing, yeah. you'd hired. Yeah. And so there was a lot of unqualified people to be in positions that there were out there and it was getting dangerous. Hmm. And so I decided to leave at that point in time and in my bit, my building business, and I was starting to do developments of rural subdivisions at the time. So that needed more of my attention. So I left offshore oil. Hmm. However, within a year of me leaving the last position I had, which was installation manager, assistant installation manager of an offshore oil rig, that rig sank and killed all 84 men on board. Oh my goodness. Yeah, wow. and you, you, yeah, it was sad. You can actually, it was a six part documentary on YouTube that's so well done about that. It's called The Ocean Ranger. The Ocean Ranger. Yeah, if you just click on the first part, then it automatically starts doing the second, third through sixth part of it. Such a tragic thing, it happened up in Canada. And that's where I last left it. I didn't know a lot of the people on it, but the person who taught me how to drill on the offshore oil rig was on it. Hmm. That was one of the things. There was somewhere between 75 and 100 people on these rigs. That one, the Ocean Ranger, was the largest in the world. And it, like the Titanic, was considered unsinkable. Oh my. Don't ever, don't ever put that tag <laughs> on, on something on the unsinkable. <laughs> a jinx tag. <laughs> it's a jinx tag, right? It was, like I say, a romantic position uh, of doing offshore oil, get to travel, get to work with people virtually every country and culture in the world as a result of it. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very nice experience for me to have. As dangerous as it is, I tell people we had the opportunity every day to die wow. because it's it's dangerous when you're doing it on land. But when you're doing it on a vessel that's that's heaving up and down and pitching this way and rolling this way. Mm -hmm. You got to maintain your balance. You got to know where things are. These 90 foot strings of pipe that weigh in the hundreds of tons are swinging like a pendulum. Yeah, it was an adventurous job. So somewhere along the line, you had a, a spiritual life that uh, began to develop. Because I remember you saying the other day that you were raised Methodist as I was raised Methodist. And uh -huh. the Methodist Church doesn't maybe have a lot of, I don't know, doctrinal things. That, I don't know how you said it, but uh, you well, moved on from that. My grandparents 
founded the Methodist Church in the small town of Holly, Minnesota, where I grew up. Oh. So it was in my DNA. I mean, all my aunts, my uncles, and my dad's side of the family, Methodists. Uh -huh. In fact, they left England to come to America for religious freedom. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because it's the Church of England. And so they wanted religious freedom. That's what moved some of them to come to the States. And so I was raised Methodist and at the age of 16. So I went to Bible camp. Oh. which was a great experience. Mm -hmm. And from the time I was in third grade, when I first went to this camp with my father, they had a Methodist men's retreat. But from fourth grade through my uh, uh, freshman year in college, I went to one week of Bible camp every year. And it was just, for me, just, it was a whole new world. Mm -hmm. Because growing up on a farm, as dirt farmers in the middle of Minnesota, you didn't do a lot of traveling, this and that. We didn't have extended vacations to go see this and that. Our our we, our vacations were a weekend in a tent by a lake somewhere within driving distance of the house. And they were lovely and wonderful experiences. So Bible camp was such a great escape because I got to see people from all over the state of Minnesota that were Methodists. We had very beautiful times together. And in fact, at the age of 16, I got rebaptized. I was baptized when I was an infant, mm -hmm. but this meant something to me. So I was very much into, I would say, spirituality as much as I knew what it was growing up on a farm in Minnesota. Right. However, my first day of college, in fact, the night before my first day of college, the University of North Dakota threw a little hot dog and hamburger and potato chip get together for all the people in the dormitories in my cluster of dormitories. Mm -hmm. So there's three, 400 people there and just mingling around. And I ran into one guy and I said, you must be Buzz. And he said to me, you must be Lee. Now, how could that be? We knew each other's names for this reason. All evening long or all afternoon, people were coming up to me and calling me Buzz. Oh. Who had met Buzz and thought they saw him again. And people came up to him and said, hello, Lee, thinking he was me. We looked like we were separated from birth. Oh, my. And so when we saw each other, we recognized ourselves. <laughs> but that's all to say, one of the things we first talked about is like, what dorm are you in? We were both in the same dorm. I said, I'm on the second floor. He says, I'm on the third floor. Then he added, and there's this guy across the hall from me that has this weird religion. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, I don't, I don't remember what it was. I said, well, what room is he in? He said, 321. I left the party. I went up to the third floor of Smith Hall, knocked on the door. The guy was there. He was a, a senior at the time. And I, he opened the door and I said, I hear you have a weird religion. <laughs> and that weird religion, he says, well, I don't know how weird it is, but it's Baha'i. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, what's that? And he explained it for a while. But then it always just kept me curious because at the time I was a substitute minister for Methodist churches in Northern Minnesota when the ministers were on vacation. Sure, yeah. Because I'd spent a lot of time at Bible camp and got known in the Methodist community. You know, I was an MOIF, Methodist Youth Fellowship sure. and all. Me too. I got to know I got to know a lot of people. And so the bishop knew me as well. Mm -hmm. So when Reverend so-and-so from Bastrop or wherever was going on vacation, he gave me a call and said, can you take over the service? Mm -hmm. So during my first year of college, I'm studying enough to, to make sermons and I'm going to conduct the service. And, 
if I ever had a question, I could go to this gentleman, Alan J. Holm is his name, and he would, uh, he, he'd have an answer, and it was a good answer. And so essentially, after 14 months of investigating, I knew in my head this was right for me. But one day it like struck my heart and my head and my heart connected. And so at that time, it was November 12th, 1970, at the age of 19, I became a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been one now for 50 years plus a, plus a month. <clears throat> I had my 50th anniversary of being a Baha'i. And so and that has really changed my life. I, th I would say all the positive decisions I've made in my life were influenced by that alone. And that is because the three main principles are the unification of the entire human race, the unification of all religions, and the unification of all countries. One people, one people, please, is essentially the tag that they use. One man, one God, one country, one religion. So in your breakfast club, you use the word fun. Right. Okay. So that's where I'm at here in Hawaii. Yeah. I'm on the, the grounds of Rayon on the Ames. Rayon is a Japanese term, which is essentially the opposite of a hospital. You go to this place to continue to stay well. Ah. So, so we promote wellness. And this is a brainchild of a friend of mine, Julia Australia, who conceived this idea of having a place, an interfaith place to gather people together and stay healthy. Oddly enough, our first conversation, she's a Baha'i, but we met at the Baha'i National Center in Hawaii, which I wanna bring out, Hawaii in Baha'i geography is an independent sovereign nation. We have our own national administrative body. It's not part of the main continental United States. In fact, Alaska has their own because we, we were here before it became a state of the United States. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of controversy about that. And I tend to sway with the Hawaiian concept. And that is, it is a independent sovereign nation. It was, it mm -hmm. was, according to the United Nations, it's an independent sovereign nation curiously occupied by the US military. All right. So it, it was forcefully taken over yeah. by, a particular church group in the US military that huh. collaborated, went to the Queen's Palace and said, we got a bunch of ships out there with cannons pointed at you. Mm -hmm. You wanna give us a, you wanna give us your islands? Yeah. Essentially is how it went down. So. What year was that? Do you recall? 1895. Oh, wow. 1895. Which brings up a point. There's there's a couple of people who have been speakers at my breakfast club that'd be incredible guests on your show. Dr. Ron Williams and Tiffany Ng. I'll give you the information later, but they are just incredible, knowledgeable people about that entire era. Wonderful. So the islands, and there are many islands, became a U.S. territory in a sense, or occupied, however you want to call it. Right. And then much later... Became a state. And that was during my time, and I'm sure your time too. I was in grade school when that occurred. Mm -hmm. I remember we used to have 49 stars on the flag. Mm -hmm. And then for a moment, we had 49 because Alaska became a state. And then right after that, Hawaii became a state. So by the time I was in third or fourth grade, we had a 
48, 49, and 50 star U.S. flag. Right, right. I remember that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was born in 44, so I'm just a little older than you. Yeah, yeah. I was born in 51. Yeah. So uh, fun. Faith, unity, and nature. It's healing. The, the concept of Raylan and the Ames is have is is all about healing, having fun, faith, unity, and nature. And so that's what we do here. That's why I'm here. The first conversation I had with Julia Australia back when we met at the National Center of the Baha'is of the Hawaiian Islands was somehow in the conversation I came up with, I have plans or I have had a goal since I was eight to live to 125 in good health. Oh. And that was the catalyst for that was at a family reunion, which we had just about every year while my grandparents were alive. My aunt was talking about one of our ancestors in Sweden that lived to 125. Mm. And, you know, whereas whether it's verified or not, that was part of the family vocal or oral history. Mm -hmm. and I said, being competitive or whatever at the time, I thought, well, I can do that too. So I made it a goal to live to 125 in good health. Uh -huh. And like I tell people, so far, so good. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have friends that say that. And so I mentioned this when I first met Julia Australia. And she says, well, I have a goal to live to 128. And I thought, I thought, oh, that's a great one-upsmanship. <laughs> However, she's written a book. And in the book that was already published at the time, there was her goal to live to 128. Ah, well, we, we had a common interest there. And so she was at the time looking for a place to have this rail in. And so uh, I, I wasn't involved with the search, but once she found it, it was like the, the need to have a garden and have upkeep of the place. And so we worked out an arrangement that I would be that person. And mm -hmm. so I live on a very nice, beautiful spot in the uplands of Wahiwa. Wow. On an island. <laughs> on an island. Yeah, in an, on an island, on an island. Yes. Right, right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So we do promotion of health and wellness, and that's something I've been in for a long time. I lost my mother in 1974 to cancer, so it's always been an interest of mine. And I was actually a spokesperson and did the intake at a naturopathic doctor's cancer clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, before I moved out here. And I've just been into health and wellness. At the age of 19, I joined some multi-level organization that promoted health and wellness and proper nutrition. Did I you also at the age of 19? Yes. You did a lot of things at the age of 19. What a fantastic year. What a year. What a <laughs> life it's been. What a life it's been. I mean, this what a time in which we live. Uh -huh. I mean, you you know as well as I do the technology, the advances in communication transportation in our lifetime is phenomenal mm -hmm. i mean it was it was 69 we landed a man on the moon we didn't even have televisions hardly before you know 10 years before that you know so the communication the transportation communication all of it is just amazing oh and here's another thing about baha'i so baha'i started in may 23rd 1844 and within hours of the first revelation of that the Morse code was tapped out from its train station, I think it was in Philadelphia, to the U.S. Congress when Samuel Morris was there to demonstrate mm -hmm. the Morse code. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that the age of 
instant communication took place. And in prophecy, it says in the Bible, when metal heat hits metal and messages flash across the sky, then will the spirit of the Lord appear. Oh. And it happened simultaneously with the beginning of the Baha'i era. And you know what the message was? A unity. <laughs> it, very close. It was, what hath God wrought? That was the first instant communication that took place on the planet. And it's from there that it's evolved into the, to the thing where we can, in our hand, mm -hmm. hold the world. Mm -hmm. We can hold a telephone, communication of any kind, internet. It's a cameras, for crying out loud. These used to be <laughs> separate things entirely. In fact, as a child, we had telephones that were on party lines. Sure. Yeah, I remember that. And to know that it was them calling you, you had to know your ring. We had two shorts and a long. That was our ring. Bring, bring, bring. Somebody's calling. And of course, as soon as you picked up, you heard other rubberneckers picking up to see what was going down. Too, you know, but that it's in such a small town as I was in Minnesota. The telephone number when I left for college was three six nine. that was it. It was three numbers. So for me to call home, I had to call collect, obviously, because everybody else had at least a prefix if not an area code <laughs> they, they were up to seven or ten but back home was 369 oh my so the first thing i had to do was convince the operator it wasn't a prank oh yeah, yeah. i would like to call collect 369 and she'd wait for the rest of the number i said that's it mm -hmm. sometimes they'd hang up on me thinking it was a prank but eventually i got the right operator interesting you said baha'i started in 1844 that just is the u.s no, it didn't get to the U.S. until 1898, I think it was, during the, some world exposition in Chicago. Because I thought there was a prophet that was much earlier, hundreds of years earlier, in terms of Baha'i, that they that is traced back to. Am I? Where did I get off? Oh, no. Well, actually, you can trace it back to every prophet, every prophet of God, whether it was Moses or uh, Christ or Muhammad. Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster, they all have promised ones. Mm -hmm. And Baha'u'llah, he is the fulfillment of all religious prophecy. It's oh. the end of, well, he was born in 1817. He declared oh. in 1863, there was actually twin manifestations in Baha'i, mm -hmm. uh, the Bab and Baha'u'llah. The Bab is the one who was in 1844, Baha'u'llah in 1863. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, so he's essentially what that aspect of Baha'i is, is what we call progressive revelation. God has sent approximately every thousand years a new messenger on earth to, to rejuvenate the spiritual aspects. Mm -hmm. The only changes really, we all religions believe in prayer and fasting, the golden rule, be nice to your fellow man. The only real changes are social laws, because as mankind evolved socially it went from an individual person like adam to a family uh, like uh, abraham um, noah extended family um christ uh, oh and moses was a tribe yeah he had teachings for a tribe he had strict retributions because they were a nomadic tribe you know um somebody gets caught stealing off with the hand mm -hmm. because they didn't have 
juries and jails and this and that. So they had to have strict retribution. Mm -hmm. Along comes Christ. By this time, there was the city-state. His teachings were for the city-state. After that came Muhammad. Muhammad actually gave the teachings for nationhood. He, he combined all the tribes of Saudi Arabia together and created a nation. And these teachings are used throughout all of Western civilization. The nation is an Islamic concept and principle. Hmm. So you've gone from individual man, the family, the extended family, the, the tribe, the city, state, the nation. The next step in that progression is the unity of the entire human race, the hmm. one world concept. And that's what the teachings of Baha'i have to offer. And you learned that starting at age 19? At, uh, I started at age 18. I 18 became a Baha'i. At college, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My first day of college. So thinking as we do sometimes, that night, you're uh, leading to leave the party and go up to that room simply based on somebody that had a weird religion. What do you attribute that to? I guess curiosity and always the desire to learn. I have an unstoppable quest for knowledge. You know, and I have, I guess, my parents and, you know, it's amazing. My father's generation, which was born in the early 1900s, all 10 of his siblings, including my dad, were college educated. Wow. These are dirt farmers. Hmm. And so I don't remember growing up that they said, okay, you got to study because you got to go to college. It was never said. I think it was just in the aura. Right. Yeah. That that's what you did. Yeah. So our family does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things that, that attracted me to it once I found out about its principles, including the oneness of the entire human race, the elimination of all prejudices, whether the prejudice be uh, racial or nationalistic, religious, social, economic, doesn't matter. You eliminate prejudice. You don't judge people before you get to know them heart to heart type thing. We don't judge people um, based upon any reason. Mm -hmm. And in my, so one of the main principles, so I don't know if it got cut or not, was that we believe in the unification of the entire human race, the elimination of all racial prejudice, the equality of men and women as well. My ancestors on my dad's side were involved with the Underground Railroad to free the slaves back in the 1800s. My dad taught me the principles of elimination of prejudice as well. So I had that as a background. So that attracted me to it once I found out that, that right. was part of it. Mm -hmm. And so for the past 50 years as well, I've been a promoter of the elimination of all prejudices, whether racial, ethnic, social, economic, national, religious, right. world one. World one. And how do you, or how does Baha'i get that shift to take place in people? Well, so we're, we don't uh, proselytize. Oh, okay. We, we do teach. If, if it's brought up, we do answer any questions people have, but we're not out there knocking on doors. Have you heard this and that uh -huh. by and large? So we have public events. We have what's called firesides where we invite people. We also very focused now on having devotions uh, where we invite friends, neighbors, family, just to join us in prayer. And it's inter interfaith prayer. It's like, we just, you know, it's to raise consciousness of the spiritual aspect of us. And so it's, we feel it's very important. We have these core activities like prayer, uh, uh, gathered together in a form of devotion, 
We have children's classes. We have a whole series of educational books that take you from infancy up to to the end. You know, <laughs> and it covers, covers every topic that you you can imagine. All and the so, way to 125. All the way to 125. In fact, I got to mention this just this week. Uh, it was a week ago Sunday, actually. So eight, eight days ago, I had an article published in an international publication on the internet called BahaiRecollections.com. And if you go to that BahaiRecollections.com, the first article that pops up currently is my article on my dear 90-year young friend, Bill Smiths. Bill Smiths, who is 90 now, first learned about Baha'i when he was three years old. So that was a long time ago. And his role and what he's done during his years, he became a Baha'i in 1958, and he just has a remarkable life. And it's all laid out in this article I wrote on him with photos from when he was three with his grandmother from Norway to, to now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's, he's one of the most intriguing men I've ever met. And it was here in Hawaii where I met him, and we just became friends. And we go out for dinner occasionally. We did many things together. It's just an interesting, dynamic fellow with such a memory, too. He has memorized so many passages from the Bible, the Quran, from Baha'i writings. He can quote 10-minute soliloquies of Shakespeare. If you want to know the periodical tables, he can run it from the front to the back. He can do the books of the Bible from front to back. Um, he is one of 1,200 bridge masters ever in the last century. He plays tournament bridge, and he's one of 1,200 out of the millions of people that play that has got this designation of being a man. And he does coin collecting. I mean, it's just insane, his memory. <laughs> at, at 90. At 90, most. yeah. At 90. Fantastic. Yeah. So you started to kind of answer my question about how people are able to change from their prejudices or their their culturally programmed perspectives right. to change. How do you how do, you, yeah. you said you don't proselytize, but you do teach. So we do teach. And we have these things called silent teachers. We have these houses of worship all over the world that are just phenomenal architectural edifices. Mm-hmm. And people are drawn to that. And all of our houses of worship are built by us, paid by us, but are open to all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And they're all nine-sided structures and all doors are on nine sides and anybody in the world can enter them. I was just so, the, the one up close to Chicago when I was in high school just for a a look yeah yeah in Wilmette up on the north shore there yes so how people do it primarily first of all we believe everyone has the capacity to recognize the manifestation of God for the days in which they live so everybody has the capacity but we believe in the independent investigation of truth you only can know things through your own mind you can only feel things through your own heart And so it's up to the individual to do their own investigation. Really, our only responsibility, ultimately, is to let people hear the word Baha'i and Baha'u'llah. Once they've heard that, it it has to resonate with them, and they have to do their own investigation. We do have people from, you name it, from every religion in the world. Even Baha'u'llah fulfills the prophecy of the, the holy men of the American Indians, 
of the Hawaiians. I mean, we have people who become Baha'is from every religious background. Mm -hmm. it, it is the, the most incredible experience for me to have gone through the last 50 years in Baha'i gatherings throughout the world. I've been to over 40 countries and I've gathered and had, you know, com companionship with Baha'is from all over the world, from you name the cultural background. Mm -hmm. And the thing is about Baha'i, there's a covenant that says there will only be Baha'i. It's not going to be any schisms. There's not going to be a split off. There's not going to be second church of Baha'i or anything like that. There's Baha'i. And we were guided by our administrative body, which is elected by all the national administrative bodies from all over the world. They gather every five years and elect what's called the Universal House of Justice. And if there's ever something that might create a schism or might create some difficulties, they're the final say. Whatever they say, that's it. You obey it or you, you get excommunicated as such. We, we, we call them covenant breakers if they don't obey the ultimate decision of the Universal House of Justice. Mm -hmm. okay. So as Baha'is, we stay, we stay united. Mm -hmm. And we have global plans that are orchestrated throughout the world. We're, I think, the second most, if not the most dispersed religion in the world as far as territories, islands, and mm -hmm. such that we cover. Hmm. We're, we're everywhere. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great thread that started very young. Can we go back to, you also mentioned becoming a part of a wellness organization back in your early college days? Is that, yeah, yeah. or health, so, so it might've been called health then? Yeah, it was, it was a company called Shackley. That promoted yeah, sure, Shackley, sure. I was a Shackley distributor. Okay, yeah. And so I've been in and out a lot of them. It's, I still promote health. One of the things I do is promote health and wellness through proper hydration, nutrition, and lifestyle, mm -hmm. which all is important to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. Acidity is the worst thing for your body to experience because it's only with acidity can cancer, dementia, AIDS, heart disease, they only exist in, in an acidic environment. So the part of it is to stay alkaline. And you can do that by the food you eat, by the water you drink, and by your lifestyle. If you maintain a 7.365 pH blood plasma arterially, you're healthy. If you smell a baby's breath, it's sweet. It's because they're alkaline. Mm. If you smell a dying person's breath, it's foul. It's mm. acidic. Mm. Alkaline is life, acidity is death, essentially. So oh. staying alkaline is a very important thing. So I promote a, a machine that creates what I consider the world's healthiest water. It's alkalized, ionized, microclustered, youth promoting, um, anti-inflammatory, anti it's living water mm -hmm. and it's alkaline. And so that's, we're 95, we're 75 water. It's one of the easiest way to get your alkalinity up. Raw fruits and vegetables does it as well. Meditation, exercise also is good for it. Mm -hmm. So the machine itself is something that somebody would get. They wouldn't buy water that shipped uh, thousands of miles. Right. Like F F Fiji apple or F Fiji apple. Fuji water. Is it Fiji or Fuji water? It's, it says it's alkaline, but it's at the time of bottling. So the machine that I have in my kitchen and one that I have at work 
produces it and it's best right there out of the tap when it actually has gone through the machine with uh, seven titanium with platinum coated filters, whatever. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I just know the result. I know the benefits and I know the benefit of the benefits. Uh -huh. So that's why I use it. And that's why I promote And actually people can buy the machine and I do sell them, but I also just give away the water. So mm -hmm. I have a lot of people come here on a regular basis to get up to fill up their three or five gallon jugs. And they come to the fountain of living water. They come to the fountain of living water and I give it away <laughs> for free there. Anybody's welcome to come get it. And actually there's one lady that comes who had it prescribed by her doctor. Mm -hmm. In actually in Japan, it's a medicinal device, but because of people like uh, behind the AMA here, it's a kitchen appliance. It has, you know, mm -hmm. but in Japan, it's a medicinal device approved by the equivalents of the AMA there. Here, it's not because what I've found, and this is my opinion, that there's no money in health. So the, the pharmaceutical companies and the AMA, they aren't interested in you being healthy mm -hmm. because they don't, they, 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 they want to give you a pill for every ill and they want to slice you open if something's wrong internally. And all of this stuff, in my opinion, doesn't have to occur. That would be the last resort. And one of the first resorts, in my opinion, is something that you and I got introduced to. And the reason I actually got to know you is through ancient secrets of healing. And that, to me, it so resonated with me because mm -hmm. I've, I've been about natural cures. Mm -hmm. You know, growing up, if we were getting a little sick, we had this awful thing in the refrigerator called cod liver oil. Mm. <laughs> you know, that was a natural remedy. And I find out years later, cod liver oil is one of the highest things that makes your body alkaline. Ah, how interesting. What, what surprised me was what mother in the first place decided to catch a cod, take the liver and squeeze some oil out of it and give it to their kids thinking that it was going to... That was a process in itself, getting to the point. That's an ancient secret of healing as well. Mm -hmm. Well, so and there's so many uh, so many stories that we hear when the, the whale is brought in, you eat the liver, or the seal is brought in, you eat the liver. And so livers have been uh, uh, part of practice for ancient... Of many, of many cultures. Many cultures, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Let me just explore this machine for a minute because it seems to separate people that have the wherewithal and people that don't. So if you, if you can afford the machine, then you can be alkaline and you can be healthy. But if you can't afford the machine, what do you do? Come to my, come to my place. I'll give it to you. For free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I have to fly. You know, yeah. So yeah, just fly to Hawaii. If you haven't got the means to buy the machine, fly to Hawaii. <laughs> so one of the things, one of the things we say is a lot of people will be buying this water from stores and all like that. You know, you you see crates and crates coming out of Costco or Sam's Club of bottled water. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if that's a means of distributing water. That's not very efficient. That's not very sustainable. Mm -hmm. So having this machine, first of all, we will finance anybody. So if we finance in such a way that the monthly payments are less than if you were to be buying bottled water. Mm 
So then you have the choice and bottled water by and large is just from the tap that's filtered and that's end of the story. And alkalinity only, only has a shelf life of two or three days anyway. So you wanna have a continual source of it. There are, there are places around the world. When I lived in Chicago, I could go up drive. We drove up to Wisconsin. There was a spring there. We could get alkaline spring water right out of the ground. We go up there with the trunk of gallon jugs and fill it up and that's what we drank. Great. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to shift gears a little bit again. I've heard you play uh, you, uh, ukulele and uh, sing a little bit. Uh, oh, you happen to have one right there. Well, this, this is a banjo uh -huh. ukulele. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I've had many requests actually for this next song, but I'll sing it anyway. No. Great. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. Actually, I, no, actually, I just got this guitar, this, this banjo guitar from my dear friend's widow who passed away and he wanted me to have this when he passed away. And mm -hmm. so did she. So I just inherited this. I haven't learned to play it yet. Oh, okay. But I'm gonna but Joel's gonna be playing it here shortly. So <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Like I say, so I joined actually joined Toastmasters, I'm gonna say about oh a dozen years ago or so. Oh okay. For the purpose of singing in public. Because Toastmasters, you put, you give a talk or whatever, mm -hmm. and they critique you first by saying something positive, something you could prove upon them, then close it with something positive. So I had no fear of being booed off the stage. So I started singing. <laughs> I started singing. It's the first time since that fourth grade experience that I actually started singing. And now on my morning Lee's Breakfast Club every Saturday, uh -huh. occasionally I'll sing a song. Uh huh. I always warn people I sing in the key of Lee. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I've heard you uh, open your show with uh, a, a stream of consciousness kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. What could yeah, be actually, called singing. It could be. In fact, <laughs> in fact uh -oh. bringing out the big guns here. Yeah. Oh, so see, I, and it's not tuned, I'm sure, but I'm going to. This is a song I wrote about my son back 40 some years ago. All right. I wrote to add some more verses because I have two more sons and a daughter since him. But. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a song about my son whose name is Conrider Lewis. There, there was a boy, his name is Ryder, Conrider Lewis, from the city of Brown Rock. Williamson County in the state of Texas, United States of America, the northern continent of the western hemisphere of the planet Earth and the solar system with its star sun spelled S-O-N. No, S-U-N, not S-O-N, because that's my son, Conrider Lewis. Well, I'm so glad that we saved this to the end of the show, so we oh, uh, yeah, right. we didn't lose any other guests. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love exactly. it. I love yeah. it. Yeah, I so, always tell people, I, I sing it first in my show, 
because any act for me is a hard act to follow. So I sing for <laughs> Yeah, so you do have family. I don't know if you want to share any more about your family uh, as you came along, but uh, you say you have a couple of sons and uh, that would... Yeah. Yeah, first of all, I come from a small family of 12, but there was six of us while my mother was living and my dad remarried a lady who had six children whose husband uh -huh. had passed away. So we were a blended family of 12. Um, I myself have four children mm -hmm. and as many ex-wives, unfortunately. I'm, being a husband hasn't been my forte, evidently. Uh -huh. So I took, after my last divorce, I took time off to get to know myself, which I'm doing now, but now I'm ready to enter the field again after 12 years of being single. <laughs> well, so this is a commercial there, for you. This is a commercial, exactly. <laughs> so yes, I have just four wonderful, gifted, genius children who are just amazing in their own right, and I just love them all, and yeah, I, I, I love my ex-wives, and they love me, so mm -hmm. we, we get along fine. Wonderful. And, yeah. Wonderful. So that's well, my family. Mm -hmm. I've got 54 first cousins too. So you can tell my parents came from large families as well. Wow. Great. Great. Well, we have a few minutes, uh, just a few minutes left. Do you want to give a sort of a closing uh, line of thought, meditation, uh, affirmation? Uh, I know you have a virtue of the day. Uh, you do affirmations as part of your breakfast club. Yeah, I just like this. You know, I pretty much I love to promote health and wellness mm -hmm. through proper hydration, nutrition, and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to meditate. If you don't know how, I would check out Vipassana meditation. It would serve me well. Now, I can you spell that for us? Vipassana. V-I-P, V-I-P, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-O. V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-O. A-N-A, Vipassana. Okay. Yeah, that should get it. I'm not sure if it's 100%, right? That's good. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, meditation is good because stress adds acidity to your body, which you don't want. And so you want to stay alkaline. And the Kangen water is great. If you want to know more about that, hit me up or watch kangandemo.com. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that has just been very influential in my life, and that is ancientsecrets.com. It, I believe that's the way. I think it's uh, my ancient secrets. My ancient secrets. Com. Com. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also, I have, I represent a product that's life changing. It's from Life Advantage. Life Advantage. It's called Life Advantage. And again, you can hit me up on that if you wish. Um, so I'm just, I'm just about focusing. And oh, I've got these wonderful. Uh, they're called electroceuticals, not pharmaceuticals, electroceuticals. Hmm. They're, they're a combination of TENS and M's units, um, which help muscle relaxation. I also have a thing called Avacyn, which you put your hand in this thing, uh, in this apparatus, it forms a seal around your wrist. It makes a vacuum inside and it's 170 degree, 107 degrees, and it changes the viscosity of your blood so that when it pumps to the rest of your body, it gets to all your capillaries. Mm. Of course, exercise is good. I love the rebounder, the miniature trampoline. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many things you could do. And one of the best uh, cardiovascular programs I ever saw was Bill Phillips, Body for Life. 
Um, it's 20 minutes, three times a week. And I guarantee you, you'll get all of the cardiovascular you need if you follow this 20 minute program in his book, Body for Life. I should, right. also, I should also say that the most incredible um, strength uh, conditioning I ever had was for my personal trainer back when I was in Arizona. He had a thing called FIT, Focus Intensity Training. Yeah. He, he took seven major body groups, boiled it down to the essence, and in 20 minutes, you covered all seven major muscle groups to failure. Oh. And if you did that twice a week, you'd be incredible. In fact, my personal trainer was the guy that developed the program that they use for Christy Brinkley and uh, what's the martial art? Chuck Norris. They, they oh. sell the they sell this thing online. They, they, the uh -huh. been on. He developed the program for them. It's not called Fit, but he has his own thing called Fit, which is the same thing. So that's all, all, all these are good. I love health and wellness. Wonderful. And, and I'm so much now into this thing called mung bean soup. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm making my fifth batch in four weeks today. Mm -hmm. I just learned about it four weeks ago and I can't get enough of it. It's amazing. And you can find that in myancientsecrets.com, I believe. I don't know if you can get it there, but at least get the book so you can get that recipe. Wonderful. My yeah. goodness. Uh, I'm so glad I asked you to, <laughs> to share some things at the end. This is a fantastic <laughs> list. I'll have to write that up for the ad. Also, I manufacture Hawaii's number one cold-pressed juice. Oh, yeah, that's one. That's what brought me here as a consultant to the cold press juice business, and I ended up being the manufacturer. And I also now specializing in 100% off the grid tiny homes. I built my first one in 1985, and I pretty much kept up with what's going on. And I can create 100% off the grid tiny homes. All right, Lee yeah. Lewis. My goodness, you know people would call you the Renaissance man or something like that. I don't know some. Fantastic oh, label. Only, only if they didn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> so we can most easily find you on Facebook, but uh, or just look up Lee Lewis on the, your search engine. Lee Lewis, it's the guy with the handsome face. You have a tie on. I have a suit and tie on it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It okay. was used, it was the picture used for my about the author of my BahaiRecollections.com article. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. Lee Lewis. We're going to have to say thank you so much and see you thank soon. You, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Dick Dalton. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And listeners, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>